0: This episode of Novara Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you.
1: Welcome to Novara Live. I'm Michael Walker. Later in the show, I'll be joined by Dahlia Gabriel. So you've got that to look forward to. Coming up, um, a devastating report about housing in Britain. Grace Blakely and Zoe Gardner tell the truth about immigration in hostile territory. Um, I should say. Um, And we'll be speaking with an expert about the BRICS Summit in Johannesburg. Is it a new non-aligned movement about to upend the global geopolitical system? Um, Stay tuned for all of that. But first, we need to talk about Scotland's political picture. The 2015 election was a watershed in UK politics, largely because of what happened in Scotland. Before 2015, Labour dominated Westminster politics north of the border. At the 2010 general election, they held 41 seats out of Scotland's 59 seats at Westminster. The SNP won only six. Yet at the 2015 general election, the SNP swept the board, winning 56 seats and Labour being reduced just to one. Ever since that election and the loss of Scotland, Labour's task of forming a majority has looked tough indeed. But things might be about to change. This is from today's Telegraph. End of the SNP era as Labour draws level in Scotland. So they say new polls suggest both parties would win 24 seats north of the border in major boost to Keir Starmer's hopes of becoming PM. The poll is by Servation and these are the headline results from it in terms of vote share. The SNP are ahead on 37% and Labour on 35% and the Tories are down on 16%. But it's that projection that the SNP and Labour could win an equal number of seats that has caused shockwaves. Britain's preeminent pollster John Curtis said this, the SNP has had little success so far in shaking Labour off its tail. As a result, the party faces a continuing risk of losing a significant number of Westminster seats in next year's UK general election. The party's efforts are seemingly not being helped by Hamza Youssef's apparent difficulty in making a favourable impression on the Scottish public. Curtis also said the polling numbers suggest pretty much every seat in Scotland could be a marginal at the next general election, so sure to be exciting. And on the significance of this for Keir Starmer's chance of becoming Prime Minister, he said this, if Labour picks up two dozen seats in Scotland, you can probably knock four points off the lead over the Conservatives that the Labour Party would need UK-wide in order to achieve an overall majority. So that would be very significant, obviously, Keir Starmer saying he wants a majority. That seemed very unlikely when he was first elected, seeming more... Likely than ever. I'm joined now by Jerry Hassan, who is Professor of Social Change at Glasgow Caledonian University and a column at The National. Jerry, thank you so much for joining us. Um, does it seem as if the SNP's collapse could be as dramatic as its rise?
2: What I would say is there's a sea change in Scottish politics. All political errors come to an end, and the end of the SNP's automatic dominance is coming to an end. But it's not, it's not a collapse, it's a slow, gradual very, very incremental uh, decline. The SNP still leading that vote. And you could say there's an upside for that for the SNP in 16 years into of office. They're still ahead of the Labour Party in votes. But they, there's a whole host of problems behind them, um, in front of them in terms of their government record, and even more in terms of the near future and ongoing controversies.
1: What would you put this down to? I mean, it's just one poll, isn't it? But clearly the results are going to be a lot closer at the next election than they were at the last. Is that because of issues... I suppose such as independence are res- reduced in, in salience, and people are now, you know, sniffing the possibility of a Labour government and getting the Conservatives out, and so sort of shifting their priorities a bit when it comes to who they might vote for in a UK-wide general election.
2: There's a whole host of factors that are producing this because one, it isn't a collapse; it's just incremental decline, and that actually brings up bigger challenges. There's lots of SNP members say to me things like, "Show us the proof that Labour's on the rise in Scotland." And you say, "Do you look at any opinion polls? Do you look at any of them since January this year?" So you've got you've got a sense of automatic dominance, as in what happens with Tories down south in England, and then you've got the SNP's problems of the the Sturgeon era, um, the problems that have emerged in the way that the the party ran Scotland and ran itself, the SNP, and then you've got the fact the Sturgeon, um, kind of Duke of York strategy of always the independence referendum being around the corner and it not happening. It ran out of ground. It ran out of thread, basically, and that has an unravelling of what kept part of the SNP vote together, because what people that are partisan, SNP lovers and Labour haters or vice versa don't get, is that a large part of the Labour SNP vote is a crossover vote. It's it's the same part of a generally centre-left, part of that vote is going to shift towards um, the Labour Party from, from the SNP.
1: And when it comes to labour, I mean, is is it about Keir Starmer? Are people in, pretty keen on Keir Starmer in Scotland? Is it about Anna Sawa? He seems to have had a reasonably sort of successful time as leader of Scottish Labour. And um, what's your interpretation of that?
2: That's a great question, and and one lots of us think about quite a bit. The, the, this has kind of fallen into Labour's lap in way um, in Scotland. Uh, the main thing that they have done is that by becoming electable in in South of England uh, and across us across the UK. Um, It's made people look at Labour afresh here in Scotland, because one of those things about independence and the SNP has been that anti-Tory vote and even seeing it as a way to stop future Tory government uh, governing Scotland without without a mandate. But of course, a UK Labour government (laughs) stops, by its nature, stops a UK uh, Tory government. There's a rising tide of pro-independence supporters who are remaining supportive of independence, who are now saying they they will vote Labour.
1: Let's go straight on to our next story. The BRICS are a grouping made up of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, who've been meeting together since 2010. But this year's summit, hosted in Johannesburg, has developed a particularly large buzz. That's in part because of controversy, namely, Vladimir Putin, who faces an arrest warrant by the ICC, would have faced arrest were he to have attended. He instead spoke by video call. But the buzz is also due to a growing sense that economic and diplomatic power is shifting away from the West, with countries of the global South more keen to assert their independence. Ahead of the summit, South
3: African President Cyril Ramaphosa gave this speech. BRICS makes up a quarter of the global economy. It accounts for a fifth of global trade and is home to more than 40% of the world's population. BRICS as a formation plays an important role in the world due to its economic power, its market potential, its political influence, and development cooperation. Yet the value of BRICS extends beyond its sheer size. BRICS continues, or countries rather, can collectively shape global dynamics, and acting together, it has the potential to drive significant changes in the world economy and in international relations.
1: Some of the key issues up for discussion at the BRICS summit are how to move global trade away from its reliance on the dollar and how to beef up the role of the BRICS new development bank, which competes with the Western controlled World Bank as a lender of money for infrastructure projects. But international affairs is also high up on the agenda. This is Brazilian President Lula speaking at the opening plenary.
4: The Ukraine war shows the limitations of the UN Security Council. Many other conflicts and crises do not have the same attention. And the BRICS is a forum to discuss the main issues that affect peace and world security. We cannot bypass the treaty. The main conflict of today that is happening in Ukraine that has global effects, Brazil has an historical position in the defense of the sovereignty and integrity of the territory and of all the principles that are followed by the UN. We believe that it is positive that a growing number of countries, amongst them the BRICS countries. Also are uh, engaged in direct contact with Moscow and with Kiev.
1: That was Lula expressing a position which has frustrated the West, but that refusal to pick sides in geopolitical conflicts has become a key strategy for many countries in the global South. That dynamic was described in a piece by the foreign editor of The Financial Times in a widely read this widely read piece this week so it's titled the a la carte world our new geopolitical order with the us and china at loggerheads a range of middle powers see an opening to pursue their interests now the journalist writes this welcome to the a la carte world as the post-cold war age of america as a sole superpower fades the old era when countries had to choose from a prefix menu of alliances is shifting into a more fluid order The standoff between Washington and Beijing and the West's effective abandonment of its free decade dream that the gospel of free markets would lead to a more liberal version of the Chinese Communist Party are presenting an opportunity for much of the world, not just to be wooed, but also to play one off against the other. And many are doing this with alacrity and increasing skill. Other analysts have suggested the BRICS represents the re-emergence of a non-aligned movement. Speaking to Democracy Now!, this is Marxist academic Vijay Prashad.
4: A group of large southern countries that are basically saying that no longer do they believe that the West's interest is equivalent to their interest. They are putting forward their national, to some extent, their regional interests, you know, to the fore. They, They don't any longer want to be, quote unquote, the veranda boys. A phrase used by a Ghanaian politician in the 1960s. They don't want to sit and do whatever the West tells them. They're driving their own agenda. What I was interested in is the statement made by UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres at the release of a report called A New Agenda for Peace. At that event, Antonio Guterres said that the post Cold War world has ended. The post Cold War world. That means the world. Uh, that was created after 1991, he said, that world has ended. And he said, we're in a new period. And he said, some people are calling this the era of multipolarity. Maybe. I think it's premature to name something right now. We're in a new era. Well, let's try to understand that new era. It's certainly not a great era of anti-imperialism, but it might be the emergence of a new non-alignment. However we
1: interpret the rise of the BRICS, its appeal is clear from the number of countries who want to join it. 22 countries have expressed interest in joining the bloc. They include Iran, Saudi Arabia, Argentina, Bolivia, Indonesia, and Ethiopia. To discuss more on the significance of this summit, I spoke earlier to Eric Olander. He's host of the China in Africa podcast on the SubChina Network. And I started by asking him what he thought was the significance of this BRICS summit.
5: The significance is in the symbolism more than the substance that we're going to see a little bit of an expansion of the membership, maybe two or three new members, but you're not going to see a massive commitments of capital. You're not going to see the much hyped, you know, introduction of a new currency. You're really not going to see a whole lot in substance. But this is a platform for a growing number of countries to express their dissatisfaction their grievance and their frustration with the current international U.S.-led system. And, and that is important. That grievance is really important. But I think when you hear people ascribe so much that it's this new counterweight to the G7 and the G20, it's going to be this challenge to the Western-led system, uh, I think they're missing the point. Um, because you're not going to have you know 10-point action plans and billions of dollars committed to it. That's just not what it's, what it's about. Listen, the BRICS has been around for eight years. Point me something that they've done other than create a mid-level, mid-tier development bank. Eight years, and they've had five members for the past eight years, and they've barely gotten anything done. Now, imagine with more members, things don't get easier they get more complicated. There's more divergent interests. There's more concessions that need to be made. There's more compromise that needs to be made. And in politics, as divergent as those
1: are in the global south, this is, this is going to get harder, not easier. I suppose that's to assume that sort of the institutions it makes, you know, you'll need consensus among all of the nation states, right? Because if, if this new development bank, which they've created, becomes something more like the World Bank, then that could have some independent Organization, it would just be the money, the, the country, so we provide the capital for it. And I think it has $100 billion behind it, right? The, the new development bank. So that will be a big deal. You know, it's not a big deal in terms of the Chinese economy, but it might be a big deal in terms of South Africa or other African nations, for example. It is. But it, it is, again,
5: you know, they've run into funding problems um, because now, because of the sanctions with Russia, they've had it difficult to raise new capital. And so this is, again, it's it's an important bank. I don't want to take anything away from the bank. They've done a lot of, of really important loans. And in fact, ironically, it's India uh, that has benefited most from the new development bank. I say ironically, because, you know, we have to talk about the India-China relationship. And when you hear all of this Magnificent rhetoric about what the BRICS presents as an option and an alternative to the Western-led system that overlooks the incredible challenges right now that are being confronted in the Indochina relationship, and in the you, you know both sides of of that border, of that two thousand kilometer border, have tens of thousands of soldiers that are staring down one another. Heavy artillery has been deployed to that to, to those both sides of the border. Uh, these are countries. This is a, these are two countries whose relationship has spiraled downhill for the past two or three years. In fact, the leaders Modi and Xi couldn't even shake hands, much less talk to each other last year. So, if the Indians and the Chinese can't get along, so much as even to really have a substantive talk with one another, remember the Chinese haven't had an ambassador in India for almost a year now. They've expelled all the journalists from each other's countries. They, the, the Indians are getting closer to the United States as a member of the quad. Okay. So if that relationship sours, then there's no hope for the BRICS because this is a consensus led organization, as you mentioned. And if the two largest members of this group can't even talk to each other, the leaders can't sit down for a rational discussion. What hope does a, you you know, a group like this have? So again, the symbolism is very important. Substance is still
1: in doubt. So, when it comes to the BRICS, I mean, China is obviously far and away um, the most significant country in terms of the economy. So, the 20% of global GDP. Next is India on, on 7%. This is a purchasing power parity, parity. And then down to South Africa at 0.5%. So, there's, there's clearly one person in that room, Xi Jinping, or he wasn't in some of the rooms, which we'll get on to in a moment. Um, but there's one country in that room um, who has the most cards to play. Um, the Chinese have said it was Xi Jinping who said it via. Um, a, a minister that they have no intention of sort of dominating these countries. He said, "Hegemonism is not in China's DNA." Do you do you buy that line? That sort of China is quite willing to enter into, I suppose, mutually beneficial relationships as opposed to ones which are which are hegemonic and and, and, sub, and sort of characterized by domination.
5: One person's hegemony is another person's, you, you, you know whatever. But uh, hegemony is one of those words that is extraordinarily flexible. But let's talk about China and the BRICS. And this is, again, China's outsized economic weight is exactly one of the concerns that the Indians in particular have, that any, for example, a BRICS currency could potentially be heavily dominated by you, you know the Chinese reserves into that central bank, whatever is backing up that currency. That is not something necessarily that the Indians are, are going to support and to be comfortable with. Also, when you see, for example, that the that the Chinese were trying to push the narrative that that the that the BRICS is a counterweight to the G7, uh, President Lula in Brazil and also in South Africa, the South African foreign minister came out and said, no, nope, no, nope, no, nope, that's not what we want. So we do have some divergent interest with the Chinese. It's very important to remember that there's very little, if anything, that the Chinese need the BRICS to do that they can't do themselves. So this idea that the Chinese are going to take over the BRICS and dominate the BRICS I think is overstated simply because I think for them what they're trying to do is they're trying to use the BRICS as a way to discredit the Western-led international system to the point where it gives the Chinese just enough room for them to maneuver more in the system to be able to exercise what they feel are their due rights as the world's second largest economy, the world's largest navy, and so forth, and its size and clout in the international system that right now it feels boxed in by the U.S. So in that case, the BRICS is a very useful tool for them to collect this anxiety, this frustration, this resentment, this grievance that I talked about, and to be able to push that against the West and say, you see, it's not just us. It's all of them. It's those 40 countries that are lining up that want to be members that say, we don't want to be subject to economic sanctions by the West. We don't want to be subject by your rules. We don't want to use the dollar. We don't want to use the swift, all of these different things. And it gives an enormous amount of validation to Chinese frustrations. That doesn't necessarily mean that the Chinese will use the BRICS to exercise policy, because for the most part, the Chinese tend to prefer to exercise policy bilaterally rather through than through multilateral organizations. And multilateral organizations that it does use, it tends to prefer ones that it controls, such as, well, heavily influences, like the AIIB, for example, or now the emergence of the Global Security Initiative, the Global Development Initiative, and the Global Civilization Initiatives. Those are things that it tends to prefer to be able to use rather than ones it doesn't. So I don't see the BRICS as a Major vehicle of Chinese power. But again, optics, symbolism, rhetoric,
1: super important. And I intimated towards it in my previous question, but Xi Jinping, he is at the, the summit, but there was a speech he was supposed to give, um, which he didn't turn up for. Someone gave in his place. And it seems like sort of the, the decision to not turn up was so last minute that Chinese state media had had sort of published the, the quotes from the speech as if he had given it. Um, people are reading into this that there might be. You know, something going on. Do you think there is any significance
5: to this? It was left to the Commerce Minister, Wang Wentao. And it was very interesting when you saw all of the, four, the three leaders on stage who were there just to kind of walk on stage. And then Putin was obviously on screen. And then Commerce Minister Wang Wentao, he, he kind of said there, and people were like, wait, what? Because uh, President Xi was scheduled to give a 10 minute address towards the end of the day. He did not show up uh, by Chinese standards. Uh, This is highly exceptional. It was extraordinary. I have to be honest with you that in 35, 40 years of studying Chinese and being a journalist there and living there for many years, I have never seen this happen. Uh, Online, China's supporters were telling me, don't worry, this is no big deal. This happens all the time. They couldn't point, though, to one example when this has ever happened, where a Chinese president who was scheduled to speak at a high-profile event with other world leaders mysteriously did not show up. So in that sense, it was highly exceptional. And, and again, no one has any explanation for it. So rumors started flying wildly through the Sanden, uh Convention Center in Johannesburg as to what was going on. And so some people were saying maybe he fell ill. Um, well, that's highly unlikely because we saw video of him all day and he looked in really good shape. More importantly, we saw him at the dinner with Sir Ramaphosa and he looked fine. Uh, he was vibrant. He was walking well. There was no indication whatsoever that he was sick. Other people said, well, maybe he was jet lag," And that's kind of ridiculous because those are people who don't understand that this is a guy who flies on a custom 747, probably with a huge sweep. And at this level, they don't get jet lag because they sleep and they're well taken care of. So that's not an issue. And, and she is a long experienced world traveler at a high level diplomacy. So I don't think that's the issue. Other people said maybe it's the Modi effect, that Narendra Modi was on stage and he didn't want to share the stage with Modi. That too doesn't make any sense simply because he had already been on stage with the Indian prime minister multiple times throughout the day. They did a family photo. Uh, There was other, other events that they participated in. So why would he suddenly want to back out then? So we're left with the only Possible option as to why she mysteriously disappeared, simply because there was an urgent pressing matter that required his attention and he had to take it and he had to deal with it. You know, let's not forget that the Chinese economy right now is dealing is, is not in good shape. Uh, there is a very tense confrontation with the Philippines underway in the South China Sea. There is a major corruption scandal going on with the PLA Rocket Force. So a number of very important things are going on back home. My suspicion is that something required his attention that he just had to deal with and that was not communicated well throughout the system. So as a result, Chinese state media, they kept going with their posts. And more interestingly, his top foreign policy spokesperson, Hua Chunyun, the chief spokesperson for the foreign ministry, uh, she had a post up on X that said, you know, he delivered the speech. And the speculation is then, well, why didn't? she take it down well because i think by removing it it just generates more controversy acknowledging that there's a problem so they just figured let's just kind of barrel through uh, at the end of the day it was historically important very very odd for a government that obsesses over protocol as much as the chinese government does particularly surrounding the president and this president especially so very very exceptional but at the end of the day probably not very important
1: that was Eric Olander speaking to me earlier today. Some breaking news for you. Um, you might remember very recently uh, there was a what looked a bit like a coup um, mounted against Vladimir Putin by the head of the Wagner group, Evgeny Prigozhin. Um, well, it just so happens that a plane which was carrying Prigozhin um, has crashed, and he seems to be dead. Um, so that is, tends to be what happens to Vladimir Putin's enemies. Not particularly subtle. This one, obviously, Vladimir Putin, as you um, heard in that introduction, was speaking to the BRICS via video call, which I suppose meant he was in Moscow when this happened. I'm not going to talk in too much detail about it because it's not really my area of expertise. I'm sure we will come back um, to this on tomorrow's show with a little bit more insight and analysis for you because it seems like a pretty big deal. Um, before we go on to our last two stories, let me bring in Dalia Gabriel. Dalia, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. Um, I, that was a really interesting interview. I feel like we don't go into the international thing enough, and the international thing, the rest of the world, um, you know, international politics enough, and particularly international politics that, are, that is centred around, you know, conversations between non-Western countries and political alliances between non-Western countries. So I think that, you know, that I, I really enjoyed that, that interview, and I would love, yeah, more of that, basically.
1: There has been lots of interesting discussions this week, specifically because of the BRICS, this idea of a non-aligned movement. Very, very fascinating. Um, Vijay Prashad, who you saw sort of in that introduction, has a great book um, on the original non-aligned movement um, called The Poorer Nations. I do recommend it highly.
0: Mainstream media in Britain isn't meant to keep us informed. It isn't about relaying facts or providing useful context. More often than not, it exists to serve the rich and the powerful. But we say, fuck that... You fund us, listeners like you who have chosen to back independent, truthful media. If you can, please consider donating one hour's wage per month, or whatever you can afford, at navaramedia.com forward slash support. We couldn't do this without you, so thank you.
1: Next story. Thousands of parents with full-time jobs can't afford to live in private rental properties, and so are living in B&Bs, or even tents. Those are just some of the shocking revelations in a report from ITV News.
6: Aurora has been homeless for half of her life. This little 11 months old has learned to crawl, to play, and now almost walk in cramped, overcrowded hotel rooms, surrounded by boxes and bags of belongings and her two brothers, all bereft of home.
7: It was snowing, and I thought, I'm on the street with a baby... It was horrible. And I remember just sitting in the car and crying.
6: Mum Michaela juggles her job in a factory with trying to find somewhere to live. She's rented privately for 13 years, but in February became homeless. With no council homes available, she's moved from hotel to hotel in North London. Have you tried to find anywhere to rent privately?
7: There's nothing that's affordable, nothing. Even if I didn't have any bills to pay... I didn't eat food. I still would not be able to afford the price they're charging.
6: So we've got a break in the weather. We've been with Michaela since the start of the school holidays. Despite working, she can't afford any summer clubs, so the park is their escape. Uh
7: we'll switch. OK, every five goals.
6: It's where eight-year-old Callis is happiest, with a ball at his feet. What little life he has so far lived has so often been defined by uncertainty.
7: I thought we was going to be there for like a month and a half, a month. Really? Yeah.
6: How do you feel about that?
7: Sad. I'm frustrated. It's just hard to live there.
6: And If you could wish one thing in the next few months, what would it be?
7: Uh, We move somewhere good and then we stay there.
6: And that's just so
1: heartbreaking, right? I mean, it, you saw that clip. The mum's doing everything, you know, I I don't really buy into this sort of Tory argument that you you should live the right way and if you don't then, you know, what you've got what's coming to you basically. But even on those sort of Tory terms, she was doing everything right, right? She's working full-time and that kid is being punished essentially by the state, right? Because there's nothing the mum can do to get them better more secure housing. And so you hear the difficulty of that 8-year-old and it's, it's not the mum doing it to that eight-year-old. It's the state doing it to that eight-year-old. That is a political decision that we have made that uh, an eight-year-old, a young boy, is going through his life with zero security. What effect is that going to have on his mental health? What effect is that going to have on his chances of, of, of doing well at school? I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. It's also completely unnecessary. Now, we could have spent the last 40 years building council homes, right? If we'd done that, then we wouldn't be in a situation like this. Instead, we starved councils of money, sold off housing stock, and banned councils from building replacements. That's the key thing, the key thing, I think, which is completely despicable when it comes to UK government policy. What's even more shocking, though, is the story for this family just gets worse.
6: Michaela has just been told the only property Enfield Council will offer them is private rented accommodation in the north of England. And if she doesn't take it, they'll be removed from the hotel.
7: I was literally up all night with anxiety um, about the thought that I'm going to be moved far up north. Um, No support network for me or my children. My kids would have to be pulled from their schools. Um, You work. And I work.
1: So that mum is being told she either has to move to the north, like leaving her job, her extended family, her friends, pulling her kids out of school. That's that's pulling her kids out of school. Essentially, the state saying, you have to rip your child out of the school they are, out of their friendship group to move somewhere cheaper, essentially. Or, and I think this is the real brutal part, or end up homeless on the street, right? So it's not saying, well, if you want to move out of this hotel we've given you, we'll we'll send you up north. It's saying, we're going to send you up north. And if you decline, then that hotel that you're living in, which is B&B, whatever, it's a pretty miserable situation, you're going to lose that as well. Now, the situation in places where homeless Londoners are being sent to is also far from rosy. So ITV spoke to a family of four living in one of their grandparents, one of the family's grandparents' garden. Now, both parents here have full-time jobs, but they were served a no-fault eviction in June and can't find anywhere else to rent.
6: The costs are ridiculous, and then you've got people that are offering six months rent in advance, so you're going to have them rather than us. It's uh, it's very competitive, which it wasn't a few years ago. Obviously not getting much sleep in the tent and then going and work during a 12-hour shift. I'm like constantly tired, um, but it's just what I've got to do, isn't it?
0: It's took its toll on me mentally,
6: like really, but like I said, I've been suicidal. So, uh, and I've, I've rang the hotlines a few times to just chat to people and stuff.
1: Now those situations are not rare. Two hundred and forty-two thousand households are now classed as homeless, and thirty thousand households have been moved by councils to live in completely different areas of the country.
0: That young mother saying, "My options are either I move, uproot my entire life, you know, leave my job. Who knows if?" I'll be able to find a job in the North where I'd be sent. I don't have any networks. I don't have anyone who could help me out with childcare, help me out with finding a job. My child will have to be, after already being uprooted so many times from the place where my child lives, I now have to uproot them even from their school community. It's either that or I get made homeless, which once you fall through that crack, it's very difficult to climb back into the social safety net. That's an impossible decision. I don't know what, what decision I would make in that in that circumstance. I don't I, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy to have to make that decision. It's devastating. But I'm not surprised. I'm I'm not surprised that this is what is happening. It's sort of the mathematics of our economy um, right now. I'm particularly also not surprised that this is happening to families with young children. They have been incredibly hard hit, particularly hard hit by over a decade of austerity, by the recent shocks of the pandemic, the cost of living crisis, none of which were caused by working class people in this country. And yet they are bearing the brunt of it. As an average in London, you have Londoners paying 40% of their income on rent. On top of that, if you have young children, particularly children under two, you are finding yourself, you're finding their childcare costs being 65%, in some cases, 80% of your wage, of your take-home pay, like the maths isn't adding up, 40 plus 65% is above 100%. The long-term impacts of that are essentially undoable, particularly by, if you look at the direction that this country is going in, and the fact that I'm not seeing from Labour a really coherent plan to undo this damage, because The impact of unstable housing, and let's not forget where the housing isn't necessarily unstable, oftentimes the social housing is very poor quality and causes lots of long-term impacts in that sense. But even just the fact of having a child being moved around a lot, having an unstable housing situation, the long-term impacts of that are proved. We know that it impacts children's emotional well-being. We know it impacts their educational development. We know it impacts their physical well-being, and that's going to have knock-on effects throughout that child's life. So we are just creating by design a generation of people who have been structurally failed and who knows what the long-term consequences of that um, is going to be. And we have to understand that whilst we're seeing much more of this coverage now, because of the cost of living crisis, and in many ways, the government says, you know, the the cost of living crisis is being caused by sort of supply side issues, by unprecedented issues, things that are out out of the control or remit of domestic policy. It reminds me a lot of the pandemic. Because we heard the same thing with the pandemic. The reason that we can't cope, our health systems can't cope, our housing systems can't cope, is because of this unprecedented, you know, outside force that we couldn't—that is not our fault. We couldn't have possibly uh, predicted. But much like in the case of the pandemic, the problem here is that our social security system has already been so weakened. There was already no slack in the system that when any external shocks, whether it's energy prices, whether it's war in Ukraine or whatever, any minor shocks... Are going to make the system are going to push people over the edge. And that's exactly what we're seeing. And that's the kind of system that this government has, has created. It's created a system that cannot bear even the tiniest weight of shock. And particularly as we enter, you know, climate breakdown, you know, the knock-on effects of that, we're already facing that. We cannot afford to have a system that falls under the slightest pressure. But that's unfortunately the system that has been very deliberately built for 10 years, because it's not like people who made these policies didn't know that when you don't provide social housing, when you don't increase wages, when you allow landlords to run roughshod over renters' rights, that this was going to be the ultimate conclusion. And so the government is instead just relying on people scrimping around in their informal resources, even just a tent and their parents' back garden, in order to fill the gaps that the state should be covering.
1: ITV also spoke to the leader of Enfield Council. So it's Enfield Council that told that first family they would need to move up north. Now, she's a Labour politician. This is how she justified her council's actions.
8: The number of people approaching the local authority has um, doubled um, over the past year. And it's in part um, uh, because we've now got only half the number of affordable homes in the private sector. And I'm unwilling to leave children in hotel accommodation because I think it is hindering their life chances.
6: What happens to a family if you move them, say, to the north of England in two years time, the private landlord you use to rehouse them, evicts them?
8: Well, it, that, in many ways, it, it's no different to being evicted um, when you would have been in Enfield too. So, would they would well, go to It's completely different lo-
6: because they're from Enfield. So, they may have family support network. They may have people they know. If you send them up to the north of England, they don't know anybody, and then they're homeless completely on their own.
8: Well, the support that we provide families as much as possible in relocating them, we think we will we will help. Um, will help them in settling so they don't find themselves in that position.
6: But that position is out of their control council leader. Private landlords are right now evicting families in the north of England as well.
8: They will get the support of the local authority there, but let me just finish. So it. that's not your problem, but, basically. But if I can finish the point, I'll, I'll address it. There is a national housing crisis.
1: Now, some of that interview really annoyed me. I think the idea of saying we're not willing to leave them in hotels because that's bad for child development, as if they're sending people to stoke as a favour. Um, I found that very frustrating. I do have to say though, that on one level, I do sympathize with councils here because I don't think this is a problem that was created by local councils. This was a problem that was created by central government, not funding councils to build council homes, right? So we've had on this show before, a good friend of mine, Iden Dickadem, he's um, cabinet member for housing in Wandsworth. He tweeted today, you know, we want to build these homes, give us money right? For a council to build a shed load of council homes, they need a shed load of money to do it. Because guess what? Building stuff is expensive right now. Land in London is incredibly expensive. So councils do need to have the funds to provide housing for people. Um, I I don't think that many councils are doing this lightly. I don't think they're sort of saying, oh, screw it, let's just send these people to Stoke. I think they are being put in an impossible situation, which is part of the government strategy, really, right? So say, we're going to cut their budgets, and then it's going to be Labour councils, who are generally councils in, you know, generally in charge in poorer areas, they're going to have to do our dirty work, which is sending people hundreds of miles away from their family or making them homeless, right? So I I do think it's completely disgusting. It's been in the making for 40 years. So I think this has obviously um, been made more of an acute crisis by the Conservatives and the cuts they've made. But at the same time, I think New Labour's biggest domestic failing, obviously the biggest failing overall was the Iraq War, but their biggest failure when it comes to domestic politics was not building any council homes, right? So I think they built less than, was actually built under Margaret Thatcher. So very, very poor record. And that has left us with a system now which is just ready to collapse. I mean, ready to collapse is ridiculous. It's already collapsing. If you've got parents working full-time, living in tents of their parents' garden with kids, that is a system which has collapsed. It's not on the brink of collapsed. It has collapsed, right? It doesn't get enough attention. I don't think either party really are talking enough about this, right? Labour have sort of said, oh, we're going to do some planning reform, and hopefully that will bring about housing. But we know that if you just leave this to the private sector, yeah, I think if you have planning reform, the private sector will build some more housing. But they don't want to build so much housing that collapses the price of, of, of housing. So they probably will, to some degree, trickle it out. So if we want to have a situation whereby, you know, in five to 10 years, we have built enough housing to end the crisis, the state needs to do a hell of a lot of it. The state needs to do a hell of a lot of that building. Um, people say, oh, well, in Germany, for example, they've got enough houses and they don't really have a council housing system. Yes, but they kind of have a completely different model of capitalism. So you have lots of nonprofit organizations. You have lots of cooperation between the state and private developers to get land ready for construction. You also have less of a speculative system. So people treat housing less as an investment. We don't have that here. So given we don't have that here, we probably do need the state to just go build some housing. What model do we have of capitalism? More like the United States, they also have a terrible housing shortage and their housing is way too expensive. Very interesting article in the FT a while ago, sort of comparing the the Anglophone countries to the continental European countries. The Anglophone countries do not build enough houses and have very, very high house prices. The continental countries um, build more houses and have lower house prices. Now, I think that probably is because of the model of capitalism. We say, let's liberalize everything The market will do it. The market doesn't really do it. Let's go to our final story. The way the media discuss asylum in Britain is getting ever more extreme. But on Talk TV, Grace Blakely delivered a dose of reality.
5: They've come here from a safe country.
1: It's therefore illegal.
7: Richard, this debate just becomes so overly emotive. And basically, it comes down to kind of good migrant, bad migrant. Did they come here via a legal route or did they come here via an illegal
3: route? Are 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 they condoning illegality? Are you condoning illegality? Actually,
7: let's just take a step back and look at what's actually causing this problem, right? The reason that we've had this big increase in people coming to this country from poor parts of the world is because those places are increasingly facing factors like climate breakdown. They're mm. facing conflict, often caused by mm. countries like the UK. They're facing social breakdown, poverty. These structural factors are what's pushing people here, and they're not going away. And the reason that we are seeing more people coming into this country through Grace. illegal routes is because we aren't creating the legal routes. We've we got
4: legal routes. 1 1 1.1 million people came here legally out? last if year. If you're
7: a woman in this, you know, Afghanistan, I, not, the Taliban, this just nonsense knock on, about safe and legal like, routes. Hired,
4: One like,
1: million go to England, people 1.1 million people. So obviously what Richard ties there is, is, is doing is conflating economic migration with asylum, right So there was a lot of people who came to the country last year, but that was mainly because the government wanted people to fill jobs and it wanted people to be international students to basically subsidize our universities for domestic students because the government don't give them enough money. Now, I mean that's great. I'm very much in favor of economic migration, very much in favor of international students coming to study here. That is not a safe route for asylum seekers, because that program is not open to asylum seekers. If you're an asylum seeker, there is pretty much no safe way to get here unless you're from Ukraine, right? There was a scheme in Afghanistan, but as has been pointed out many times, very few people were able to come by that. And again, actually, I won't go into detail here because that point was made um, very, very impressively on the same channel by migrants rights campaigner Zoe Gardner.
8: The one who said that there there would be there were safe routes available and that we could have a discussion about whether they were enough. Um, the number of people who've been able to benefit from a safe route to the UK from Afghanistan is fifty four. So um, it's just a lie that there are safe routes available to refugees? Nicholas De no, no
1: it's, it's not a lie. And I, I I think that language is wholly unhelpful. There are actually numbers we know from Syria coming on 20,000. Has it that been working? Years ha- ago, ha- that
8: well, scheme it, closed well, down.
1: It, uh, more point, than five, the,
8: seven years ago. Okay, We're still right. living in you the past. On. There's no way for a Syrian to come here today. No way at all. No,
1: there are there are routes to get in this country, as I have no, there said. Aren't. The it's fact that they may be a lie. Be, okay. And
8: with swallowing this lie to justify the fact that as the other panelists well, have well, I wish said, I could
1: get a in for you millions and millions of the pounds on a
8: failed system. Let, let Nick speak,
1: place. Zoe. Let him speak if that's okay. Go on, Nick. So it's it's been acknowledged by parliamentary select committees that there are routes to come in here. There is a huge debate as whether those routes are working or not. You've even Can you got tell critics. Oh, okay.
0: Let now? him
8: speak.
1: Uh, That's
4: it. One route.
1: Right. Okay, fine. There are routes that were put in front of the Parliamentary Select Committee, and I hope you can go and give evidence to them and put your point of view over, because I would suggest that you are wrong, and you are exaggerating as well. So perhaps we can agree on that. I mean, he wasn't able to answer the question, was he? Name a safe route. He couldn't answer it. I mean, there is Ukraine. There is also Hong Kong. um, But that's it, essentially. Afghanistan. As Obi Gardner said, there there is formally a safe route for people to come here but only 54 people have managed to do that. Now, obviously, the demand to come here is a lot greater. We know that because Afghans have very recently died in the channel, right? So there are lots of Afghans who want to get to the UK. Apparently, there's a safe route for Afghans, but it's not working. Um, Dahlia, what did you make of those interventions from Grace and Zoe?
0: Really crucial. I mean, they hit all of the points. Look, to be honest, I think at this point we have to be very clear, and I'm very ashamed to say it, but we currently in this country operate a closed border policy to refugees and asylum seekers. And I say I'm ashamed to say that because it is deeply, deeply uh, shameful. Uh, Future generations will look back with that shame, I hope. Uh, And it's unprecedented and it's unacceptable. And I think that it it was very important there for Zoe to, to come back on that point that Nick Bois was making, uh, I found it incredibly bizarre. I don't know if it's just ignorance, if he just doesn't have the comprehension skills, but for him to say there are safe and legal routes in the context of a conversation about refugees and asylum seekers, to say there are safe and legal routes. 1.1 million people came through legal routes last year. That is a, a very cynical, slipperiness of language because as you said when he's talking about 1.1 million people he's not talking about refugees and asylum seekers in fact when you look at how many people have been able to come to this country through legal refugee settlement programs it's like since 2015 to 2023 it's half a million so his figure of 1.1 million that allegedly came last year that doesn't even cover what, what has happened in the past seven years. And of course, now, because we now operate an essentially closed border policy, that number is going to be even lower. Last year, it was six thousand. Six thousand people were able to be resettled via a refugee scheme. Obviously, the majority of those were Ukrainian, and very few of them, as Zoe pointed out, were Afghans. Right, so very limited and very specific availability of refugee um, re- refugee resettlement schemes. And so, it's very important that people like Zoe, with that not with that deep knowledge of the system. Are able to be on on programs like that in order to cut off um, those those. you know, she called it a lie. I don't know if it was just ignorance or or what, but it certainly is not an accurate representation of the reality. I also think it was very important for Grace to point out the broader structural reasons why displacement is happening and the fact that those not only are those contexts not going to go away, but they're actually going to get even worse because global inequality, global poverty, the instability caused by climate breakdown are all set to intensify over the coming years. But I also want to make a connection between this story around... Uh, refugees and asylum seekers and the story that we had, the last story that we talked about, about the fact that we have so little social housing, we have so little provisions that people are having to, you know, people with small children are living in tents in their parents' back gardens because they simply, it's either that or homelessness on the streets. I find it so interesting that the only time that that tragedy of, you know, people in this country not being able to find somewhere to live because of the strangling of social housing funding um, in the past 40 years. It only comes up really in the context of trying to justify the disgusting conditions that refugees and asylum seekers are put in. You know, if you cast your mind um, to a few weeks ago when you and I, Michael, were talking about, Carol Malone, who was saying that we couldn't possibly provide accommodation, you know, luxury accommodation, which in her mind is giving refugees, you know, something to eat, in her mind is is luxury for refugees and asylum seekers. We couldn't possibly provide that because there are people in this country who don't have anywhere to live. That is the, so it's using one, one cruel dysfunctional part of our economy and our political system in order to justify another cruel and dysfunctional part of our political and economic system and I think it's so clearly cynical that we only really have serious conversations about the conditions of you know people who are citizens in this country you know working class people working class citizens in this country when it is used as a stick to beat people who are slightly more um, lower down the rung of you know, working class people than people with citizenship. And it's just, and that, that's just the fact that we've done those stories back to back. It just made me think about how cynical the punditocracy, you know, the, the Carol Malone's, the Richard Tice's use local poverty um, in order only to justify the, the bad conditions that we, that we put ref, the refugees who do make it here. Um, that, that we put them through. And so really the, the kind of political ideology that both puts people in tents in their parents' back garden with their young children and the ideology that essentially operates a closed border system for asylum seekers and refugees, it's the same ideology. It's the same interest. Um, and I think the sooner we figure that out as a class, the better.
1: You've been watching nabara Live. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.